0: student's quest to write as a dissertation and uh, get a job. So I'm back from research. I've been on research for the past three months or so, uh, going from archive to archive in Scotland and England, uh, getting some primary sources that hopefully will be the basis of my dissertation. Um, it's hard work. It's lonely work. It's time-consuming. You spend a lot of time in libraries of of, of various descriptions, looking at like really, really squiggly old 18th century handwriting, squinting your eyes even more. But now I'm back. The semester is about to begin, and I'm kind of thinking through the next stages of what my grad student career is going to be. The first couple years I spent in classes, writing essays, reading books, kind of just following the Uh, lead of my professors. Then I did my orals, which was like this big self-directed learning thing. And now my job is different. I'm mostly meant to be writing my dissertation and getting a job. And part of that is this like vague, you know, universe of activities that we call professionalization. It means kind of like making a name for yourself, going out to conferences and hobnobbing with people and giving presentations and writing essays that people think are cool and getting them published and doing all that stuff that kind of makes your, your, your fame before you go off on the, you know, cutthroat job market and see if you can get some sort of, 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 of position. And this semester, I'm going to be doing two things that are really big for this professionalization push that matters for the podcast. The first is I'm going to be going to a conference. I've never been to an academic conference. I've kind of avoided them. And it's bad that I've avoided them. I, 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 my excuse is that I feel really shy about my academic uh, you know, conduct. I feel like if I get into a big room full of other grad students and professors, they're gonna, you know, ask me what I think about Foucault and I'll just get nervous and blubber and uh, they won't think that I'm, you know good enough. But I'm gonna go to my first conference this Thursday where I'm going to be presenting a paper. I'm nervous. I've never presented a paper before at a conference. I don't know exactly you know, how it's gonna go. But I'm also excited. I'm eager to get into one of those big cocktail party rooms and hobnob and, you know, tell people that I like their work, even if I haven't read their work. The second big thing is that I got asked to teach a class next semester. This is a big deal. I'll be teaching my own class. I'm I'm, I'm making it from top to bottom. I'm writing the syllabus. I'm Titling it, I'm choosing what the students are going to read and what they write and how they're assessed. And it's basically all those times that I sat through a lecture in another professor's class and thought, man, I could do this better. I could really, you know, I know exactly what the students need. Well, now it's time to put up or shut up. I'm going to have to, you know, actually teach students. Um, And I'm thinking I might use the podcast to help me, not to give it to the students, of course, but rather I might use the podcast as kind of a practice session for me to figure out what the ideas in each big class are before I actually go into them. So we'll see if that materializes. We'll see if I'm able to uh, fit that into my workflow, but you might be hearing a more regular podcast in future. But for this episode, I think I'm going to try something different. I'm going to give you guys my conference presentation. Um, Because of that, it's going to be a little bit different kind of focus than what our podcasts usually are. Usually I try to take like a big thing and synthesize a bunch of material to tell you all about what that big thing is. But this presentation is based on my own archival research and tells a much more technical story about something that's kind of you know, rather specialized. That being said, uh, we're going to jump right into it. So in a, I'm going to take like a, a nice deep breath and uh, 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 put on my conference hat and you're going to hear my presentation. So this talk is about a mystery. It's an audio mystery. <laughs> Is called change ringing. It's a really particular style of bell ringing that developed in England sometime in the 17th century, and over the next uh, you know 150 years, from say 1650 to uh, uh, 1850 or so, change ringing became increasingly popular, increasingly elaborated and complicated, and the Uh, length of of change-ringing bouts became increasingly long. And this is what the talk is going to be about. So, importantly, change-ringing is more a sport than a kind of music. Uh, You know, you don't play any tunes on the bells when you do change-ringing. Instead, what you're trying to do is you make complicated permutations of a particular ring of bells. So let's say that you have, you know, a ring of five bells. The job of the ringers, each one connected to a single bell, is to ring those five bells in each and every possible order that they could be rung in. So you have one, two, three, four, five, then like uh, two, one, three, four, five, etc. This is called a full peel. When you ring every single possible permutation on a ring of bells, it's called a full peal, and it is the grand prize of ringing. So how long does that take? Well, six bells have about uh, 720, not about exactly, 720 different possible arrangements, and that takes about half an hour for a skilled group of ringers to ring. Uh, If you increase the bells by one and have a peal of seven bells, then that is 5,040 different permutations, which takes a little over three hours. Eight bells has 40,320 permutations, and that takes 22 hours and is obviously very, very rare. Now, change ringing was never, like, a gigantic popular amusement in Britain, although Over time, it became, you know, quite uh, 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 devoted to a small group of, you know, uh, committed men, uh, especially in places where there were churches with large rings of bells that could be used to ring the more elaborate peals. Now, this is our mystery. Our mystery is why on earth did change ringing catch on? It's incredibly complicated. It's quite expensive to augment a church uh, tower to have enough bells to ring a full peal. It is incredibly time-consuming. People need to practice a lot to learn the methods of ringing. They need to practice as a group about once or twice a week to even attempt to accomplish a full peal. And then when you actually do it, it takes a really long time and is really loud. And, doing this, I want to explore why did people work together in groups to achieve these increasingly mammoth and marathon ringing bouts, and importantly, what did it all mean? So every mystery needs a red herring, and this mystery about change ringing is no different. Our red herring is religion. You think, you know, because bell ringing happened in a church steeple, uh, that it's connected with religion. But actually, that's not the case. From about the 17th century, uh, British churches were increasingly disconnected. British bell ringing, excuse me, was increasingly disconnected from actual religious observance. Uh, Puritans didn't like them, especially. And so when the Puritan movement uh, exploded throughout Britain, one of the things that they targeted was pleasurable bell ringing. They thought that it violated the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath. All you needed was a single bell rung very simply to call people to church. Everything else was too pleasurable. Um, In 1643, uh, during the British Civil Wars, for example, the British Parliament outlawed a bunch of Sunday amusements that were thought to violate the Sabbath and bell ringing was included. Uh, At the same time, one of uh, of the key Puritan thinkers, John Bunyan, Uh, was practicing bell-ringing, and he actually wrote in his autobiography about giving it up, and I quote, I had taken much delight in ringing, but my conscience beginning to tender, I thought such practice was but vain, and therefore forced myself to leave it, yet my mind hankered, wherefore I should go to the steeple house and look on, though I durst not ring. I mean, this is a really cool passage because it shows us that Bunyan really enjoyed ringing, but he felt that it was like too concupiscent, too too physical, too worldly for him to enjoy. He even stopped going to the steeple house to watch the bell ringing because he was worried that the steeple house would shake and fall down on top of him while he was watching because it was so sinful. And by the 18th century, the bells were connected with a whole suite of activities, not just religion. Um, of course, they uh, were rung to call people to church for uh, the Sabbath and for funerals and for marriages, but they were also rung on a large variety of occasions, um, on birthdays of the king and the royal family and of uh, state holidays like Oak Apple Day or uh, uh, the Gunpowder Day, uh, on news of military victories, but they were also you know, rung for local occasions like during uh, political campaigns or even just when important people came into town. So ringing for people at the time was not necessarily religious and we do not need to look for explanations for the rise of ringing in religion. Instead, change ringing is, I argue, part of a larger body of urban amusements that rose in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries in the context of unprecedented and profound demographic And economic change. So the big story here is the growth in populations. Over the long 18th century, the British population tripled, which had never really before happened. In 1680, the population was about 5 million in all of Great Britain. In 1840, it had increased to 15 million. And an increasingly large proportion of these people lived in cities, making Britain one of the most urbanized places on earth. In 1700, 17% of the population lived in in cities, uh, and that had nearly doubled by 1800 to 30% of the population. At the same time, cities were becoming much more pleasant places to live. These newly exploding, prosperous cities Uh, were improving themselves in a number of ways. They were becoming paved, for example, they were getting piped water uh, to people's houses, they were being lit at night, and they were being filled with new beautiful buildings, lots of which were actually oriented towards these new urban amusements. And related to this, there is a structural change to the economy. As more and more people are working in towns and cities, more people are working in services and skilled trades and luxury trades, which makes, you know, what we might call a new class of people. These people fit kind of awkwardly into the strict social hierarchy of the time. Um, They weren't, you know, Wealthy rural landowners or wealthy urban elites. They were not necessarily the, you know, uh, uh, landed gentry, um, nor were they the traditional uh, prosperous people of the town. They often couldn't get into guilds, or there just weren't guilds made for the sorts of things that they did. The skilled trades of the 18th century, by and large, didn't create their own guilds or companies. On the other hand, they Definitely weren't poor. A lot of people were quite rich, uh, and even people who weren't quite rich were still really different from the uh, working classes of the city and the countryside. Historians have identified these people as a burgeoning middle class or as, uh, you know, to use a more contemporary term, the middling sorts. They were skilled, independent people who were newly prosperous but still had to work and were often sometimes financially precarious, especially because of the really deep credit economy. Basically, uh, there was not a lot of cash to go around, so people ended up owing one another tons of money in these really elaborate credit relationships, which meant that even well-off people could often become bankrupt if, if one of the people that they had lent money to become, became bankrupt. And scholars who've researched this have identified a a new kind of middle-class mentality. People who save their money, who spend carefully, who do their accounts, who are really anxious about their public credit and standing, who are not too drunk, who are not too elaborate in their spending, who exercise really ostentatious self-control. Now, there was a problem. These middling sorts might have been prosperous in their own way, but how on earth were they supposed to have fun? They couldn't engage in the traditional upper-class amusements like racing or gambling or archery, uh, all these conspicuous consumption activities like wearing really nice clothing because that was you know, really expensive and would have bankrupted them. Um, Often in in conduct books for middle class people, they, you know, tell their children, do not go off and hang out with the rich people and gamble away your savings. And neither could these new middle class people participate in the sports of the more common people or the pastimes of the more common people. Um, Much of these were rural and so didn't fit into the new urban environment. Um, And also, a lot of old urban sports and pastimes like bull-baiting were being eradicated because they relied on usages of public space that were increasingly being shifted to, uh, you know, being less uh, free and open. And big things that the poor did, like public drinking and feasting and gigantic games of football and parades, did not fit with the middle-class mentality of being sober and careful. Accordingly, there were a whole heap of urban amusements that appealed to the new middle and upper classes. Many of them were connected with the new buildings of the English urban renaissance, so there were lots of assembly halls where people had these big assemblies where they'd meet and dance and drink and eat in you know, kind of semi-private areas. Uh, there were bowling clubs, uh, uh, theaters, concerts, coffee houses, and even gentlemen's clubs. And change ringing. Now, understanding change ringing as a pastime of the new middle classes lets us see it in a different way. It lets us seeing, see it as, 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 as an activity done by a group of people trying to figure out its public role. And this is crucial in understanding the mystery of why it became popular. So, we should make a distinction here. There there were bell ringers for a long time, you know, before change ringing, but we should make a, a clarification between pleasure ringing, that is, ringing done as a hobby, and what we might call parish ringing, which is an activity done by the privileged poor of a community. Every time you had the bells ringing for, like, a funeral or a marriage or for uh, the king coming into town. Often it was done by the parish ringers who would be paid a perquisite for it. And in this way, uh, it was kind of a form of ritualized begging. Proverbially the you know the parish ringers would take this money and go off to the pub and get drunk with it. Over the 18th century, however, changering in particular became seen as something different, as something done for pleasure, by the independent, people of the town, primarily the middle and, to a lesser extent, the upper classes. Um, By 1792, uh, even though earlier in the century, ringing had been identified as a lower class activity, the sporting magazine, which was really hoity-toity, included ringing in a list of the, quote, spirited, manly, and athletic exercises that men of pleasure might enjoy, including hunting, hawking, fishing, archery, and billiards. Now, if we look at the background of change ringers, when we can identify it, uh, this supports it. Um, for example, Fabian Stedman, one of the godfathers of change in the 17th century, was you know the uh, uh, poster boy for a London middle-class person. He was a third son of a parson, which means he, he didn't inherit any wealth. He was trained to be a printer and eventually became a member of the London Printer's Guild, the Stationers Company, and after that he changed his job and became a clerk for the tax office. Um, John Patrick, another Peel composer who died in 1730, was a weather glass maker, that is, a maker of barometers, which are skilled scientific instruments who importantly did not have a guild. Um, other backgrounds of, of, of change ringers include, you know, just the gamut of middle class uh, 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 occupations, clockmakers, auctioneers, clerks, uh, even you have some lower class things like milk carriers and silk dyers, although they might, uh, you know, they're identified as milk carriers and silk dyers, they might have organized a, a, a company of, of that because they seem to be quite well off. Why did change ringing appeal to the middle classes? Well, I'm going to argue that it came to appeal to these people because it embodied key values of moderation, order, numeracy, and precision. And We're, we're going to go through each of these values in turn. So, change ringing societies, like a lot of clubs, were self-governing bodies. They, you know, Uh, organize themselves with minute books and rules. And while detractors might say that these societies encouraged people to be drunk and lascivious and time-wasting, clubs of all sorts defended themselves by saying, no, 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 we use rules to organize themselves, Um, both by limiting the money and the drinks spent, uh, and also by showing that the people who were members of these groups had a kind of cultural cachet of being well-ordered, of being a person independent enough to run their own group of people. Um, Bell ringing rules, accordingly, uh, bolstered a lot of the respectability of the people. Sometimes they uh, insisted on people wearing uniforms, especially to... Uh, uh, public functions like funerals. But they also uh, said that the people who were ringing the bells could not come to the Belfry drunk or smoking or wearing a hat. They banned gambling in the steeple, and sometimes they would ban outright drinking alcohol in the steeple. But it's important, these people were not, you know, teetotalers. Uh, Often fines, uh, for example, of messing up a a ring or wearing a hat or wearing spurs were levied in beer. And often these levies of beer fines were made after the bell ringing itself had been done. So we can imagine these people would go off and ring the bells and have a fun time and then retire to the pub to get kind of buzzed and eat a, a communal meal. Now, change ringers were really proud of their order. They insisted that this distinguished them and distinguished what they did. Uh, For example, in 18th century, Ring Manual said the change ring was only good when, quote, a skillful number of persons, incorporated and united into a society, sober and made subject to orders and rules, consistent and coherent with civility and genteel behavior. And of course, the actual practice of change-ringing, of making these incredibly ordered peals, was a demonstration of the order of the people who rang them. Now, change-ringing championed a number of skills necessary for middle-class prosperity, chief of which was numeracy. Now, account-keeping, we don't think of it very often in our day-to-day lives because you know, we have Google for that. But account keeping was incredibly important, especially considering that these people in the 18th century were deeply indebted to one another all the time. Keeping detailed accounts was essential to making sure that you did not overspend yourself. And because of that, it was an important cultural marker of the middle classes. Parents would teach their kids' accounts uh, independently. A a big birthday gift, for example, was an account book. You might give a young man an account book and a sum of money to lay out to teach him how to do his accounts properly. And accounting was taught very often in school. And bell ringing and accounting are quite similar. Um, Both require intense concentration over periods of time. Both require immense precision. And, you know, for both, even minor errors mess up the entire thing. If you, you know, make an addition error in your accounts just once, it, you know, is a huge deal because your accounts won't balance. And if you make an error in the arrangement of appeal or in the ringing of appeal, it makes the entire appeal, uh, you know, ineligible for being considered an actual full peel. And something that you're not gonna you know, hear in this podcast, but I'm gonna show in the visual aids, is that the notation of change ring, the actual way that people wrote out their methods, was deeply numerate. Um, you can actually you know, compare an account book and a change ring method, and they're both these long columns of numbers that people have to memorize, and they look really, really similar. Um, I've actually found change-ringing methods doodled in 18th century account books that had nothing to do with change-ringing societies, which suggests that the same people were like keeping accounts of of businesses and then going off to the steeple and and, and practicing their change-ringing. But importantly, change-ringing was different than keeping accounts, because change- ringing was really, really loud. When people rung the bells, Everybody in the town, everybody in the city, everybody for miles around heard it. Change Ring happened high up. And when you did it, everybody had to look. What I'm saying is, is that Change Ring took the same mentality that was required for making good accounts and it made it public and laudable. It made it, in a way, cool and inescapable. Now, Change Ring also seems to be fun. There seems to be a deep physical pleasure in it. Um, perhaps uh, it encouraged people to get into uh, what contemporary psychologists call a flow state. Um, This has been described as, quote, a merging of action and awareness in which time and fatigue and worry and self-consciousness disappear as the experience of the bodily activity takes hold of the entire person. Um, To get into a a flow state, you need just the right balance between difficulty, and skill where you get immediate feedback. Often it happens in professional sports, but change ringing seems a likely candidate for something that would put people into a flow state. It's hard, but once you practice, it's doable. And it also has immediate feedback. If you mess up, you you hear it. You hear uh, when appeal goes wrong and you get yelled at. And when you read descriptions of bell ringers talking about what it feels like to ring the bells, They it, it, it seems like it could be a flow state. Also, bell ringing latched on to a pleasure in group movement that we in our individual times might not readily appreciate. Um, I'm building off of the work here of, of the historian William McNeil, who identified a kind of underappreciated pleasure in coordinated, synchronized physical movement. Um, He mostly talks about military drill and dance. Um, He calls this, unfortunately, muscular bonding, um, and he says that it's really essential in understanding how large group cohesion happened throughout history. Uh, He writes, quote, that muscular bonding constitutes an indefinably expansive basis for social cohesion among any and every group that keeps together in time, moving big muscles together and chanting, singing, or shouting rhythmically. So change ring certainly uh, uh, fits within the rubric of muscular bonding. So change ringing was popular because it was a pleasurable activity that was based on middle-class values of effort, self-control, and restraint that fit better into the daily lives of middle-class men than the traditional pastimes that were based on license, consumption, status, and release. So we're now partway to the solution of our mystery. I've shown that change ring was part of a set of new urban amusements that appealed to the middle classes. Uh, that was seen as moderate, well-ordered, and numerate, and it was fun because it uh, uh, encouraged its members to enter a state of pleasurable trance-like keeping together in time. But why did it get so complicated? To answer that, we have to look at the fact that change ring societies happened in groups that were highly competitive with one another. It wasn't enough for the members of the change ring societies to distinguish themselves from the people who were not skillful enough to ring changes. And it wasn't enough for them to distinguish themselves from, you know, the non-precise, non-manly, non-scientific members of their community who they rang for. Change-ringing societies increasingly got into challenges with local and national networks of other groups of ringers. So, First, uh, change ringing competitions were quite common. Um, when change ringing societies would ring a particularly long or complicated peal, they would often publish this in newspapers and send off notices of it to other uh, organizations, and this would lead sometimes to challenges. Um, in the 1730s, when people realized that you could ring a full peal, uh, of 5,040 rings on eight bells, there were tons and tons of challenges bandied back and forth between different ring societies in the London newspaper. Um, these ringing challenges could be multi-day bouts where you know, upwards of six groups would come to a particular church to all have a go at ringing the bells. Um, now, these competitions could be fraught Uh, sometimes they were framed when in the language of the honorable duel with people talking about, you know, their their, their honor being besmirched and how they needed to be answered for and, and, and all that sort of Alexander Hamilton stuff. In 1770, a ring competition between the old and new ringing societies of Tamworth ended up in a street brawl that left one man dead. Now, Accordingly, what, what did they actually compete about? Well, one thing is they competed about who could ring the longest peel. Um, this, had, this led to the you know, arms race of, of incredibly long peels of the 18th century. Uh, up to about 1800, there were about 340 incredibly long peels, peels of longer than 5,000 rings uh, recorded, which is unprecedented. Even today, uh, there's probably not been 340 such performances over the past 100 years. Um, in 1780, for example, uh, there was a, a peel of 15,000 changes rung that took over 11 hours to do. But change ringers also competed on the complexity of the methods of their peels. When ring societies boasted about how good they are, they mentioned like the obtuse methods that they use, their accuracy, their sophistication, their science. To show this, here's a description of a, uh, a peel written by the y- London youths. Quote, from the abstruse form of its composition and the peculiarity of the striking of the above peel it is esteemed by all connoisseurs who are masters of that art to be the most intricate performance ever done since the art was invented notice the keywords here abstruse peculiar uh, connoisseurs masters intricate this is cool because it is complex and here in the conspicuous complexity of bell ringing, we hit upon what makes it distinctive. Change-ring societies sought to show just how ordered, complex, scientific, particular, intricate, and coordinated they were through the -the over-the-top, inexplicable devotion to their complicated group activity. And this, I argue, is like Veblen's process of conspicuous consumption. Veblen said that people mark their status by lavishly spending on needless public consumer goods, conspicuous consumption. I say, additionally, that starting in the 18th century, middle classes, particularly middle class men, marked their status by lavish practice on needlessly complicated public activities to show not how rich they were, but how skillful they were. It was a much fitter arena for competition for the middle classes. The men of the middle classes couldn't feast, they couldn't wear fancy clothes, they couldn't have mistresses, they couldn't parade, they couldn't show off their their political achievements, but they could, because they were so smart and so good, practice bell rings so much that they could ring a complete permutation of peals for four hours straight and make everybody listen. It was a way of middle class men of making public claims for the value of their particular kind of masculinity. Now, this is important because a lot of the things that middle class men needed to be good at being a middle class man weren't, for a lack of a better word for it, cool. Keeping careful accounts, planning for the future, worrying for unexpected risks, restraining the appetites, they helped middle class men amassed fortunes, but it lacked flair. It lacked public demonstrations of value. Change ringing and other conspicuously complex amusements gave these practices their uh, uh, aura of being valuable. They showed a model of masculinity that emphasized all the things that middle-class men needed, physical self-control, endurance, moderation, and precision. It was a way of being cool. So this is important because conspicuous complex amusements are all around us. Although they're, they're you know, significantly less associated with a particular kind of masculine gender identity. In the 18th century, we have, you know, conspicuously complex men who get into, you know, antiquity collection, or visiting churches, or knitting, or or delving into mathematics. Uh, In the 19th century, you have a bunch of uh, imperial conspicuously complex activities, like mountaineering, where British men in clubs uh, uh, competed with one another to be the first person to climb, like, the mountains of the Alps, and they'd go off and, you know, rush off to be the first person to say, like, get to the top of the Matterhorn. You also have weird things like the Great Trigonometrical Survey, where groups of of surveyors made the most accurate map ever of the Himalayas. Um, But today, conspicuous complexity is all around us. I think that probably a lot of my listeners have conspicuously complex hobbies. Think about the thing that you do for fun. It's probably conspicuously complex. Rock climbing, yoga, uh, competitive video games, bird watching, all of these, even history I guess, are ways of publicly demonstrating your value by competing not on like how rich you are but on how much time and skill you can have. Everything through getting really good at a weirdly complicated pastime. Technically, this research shows how organizations are a good venue of seeing complex interactions between social structure and culture. Um, It shows how organizational competition could create new kinds of gender identities, and it also shows a new history of popular amusements where uh, popular amusements change not just because of uh, you know say emulation of the rich or because of middle class people trying to eradicate lower class pleasures but rather because of a way of, 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 of people having a, 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 their their amusements generated through a, a, a new kind of field of organization. Um, and I think that when we look at other kinds of amusements through the 18th and 19th century, we'll see similar kinds of processes of organizational cooperation and competition, you know, setting the rules of the game. It, it's no surprise that all of the sports that, that, that we enjoy, uh, cricket, soccer, uh, 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 rugby, all of them that came from Britain, golf originated in societies that organize their rules together. So that's it. Uh, I hope that it was enjoyable for you, my listeners. Um, it Unfortunately, I, I went a couple minutes over time, which I hope uh, that when I actually get uh, to uh, uh, the conference, I won't. Um, yeah uh, i hope that this was fun for you guys it was fun for me and i will be back soon with uh, stuff about my next class i oh forgot i haven't done this in so long i forgot what my usual sign off is and i sign off by thanking people Uh, a big thanks always to duncan barton who made all of our images he's unfortunately moving to cincinnati we've collaborated on a comic uh, which will be coming out in a couple months Um, it's part of an anthology I will drop a link to it when it comes out in the feed. Uh, thank you to Jonathan Lear for uh, our uh, intro and outro music. Jonathan Lear has a new album coming out as well, which seems like it will be very, very cool. It is all about a dog. Uh, he had a Kickstarter up. I think the Kickstarter is closed, but it's fully funded, and he can probably find some way of getting, giving Jonathan Lear some money. Thanks very much. And I'll see you guys or speak to you guys.